The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Anat Baniel, has established a worldwide reputation for her work with special needs children. A dancer and clinical psychologist, she became interested in the functioning of the human brain, studying with Dr. Moshe Feldenkrais, one of the great movement scientists of the 20th century. She has over 30 years of experience working with thousands of children and parents, training practitioners, and doing research, which has led to the creation of the Anat Baniel Method. And she is coming to Portland, actually, this Sunday, November 10th, to lead an all-day workshop at the Middleman Jewish Community Center on her techniques. She's here today on Health Watch to talk about her book, Kids Beyond Limits, Breakthrough Results for Children with Autism, Asperger's, Brain Damage, ADHD, and Undiagnosed del- Developmental Delays. If you'd like to join the conversation today on Health Watch, the number is 503-231-8187. Welcome to Health Watch, Anat Baniel. Hi, thanks for having me, David. So, so you talk in, in Kids Beyond Limits about your method being a combination of the teachings of, of Feldenkrais, your own clinical, clinical experience, and uh, information from neuroscience research. Could you tell us how those, those three threads uh, come together for you and your method? Oh, I'd, I'd be happy to. The, uh, I, as you mentioned, I trained with Dr. Feldenkrais, and I, you know, worked with him and traveled with him. You know, he was much older and helped him. Uh, and Dr. Feldenkrais uh, understood that uh, if we want to induce change, one of the most efficient ways would be if we could somehow communicate with the brain and develop his Feldenkrais method. And... Um, so I had the understanding from the very beginning that the focus is on the brain. And uh, as I started, as I, you know, worked with more people, first I worked with high-performing, lots of musicians, dancers. It was more my background. And then uh, when more and more of the special needs children came into my practice and I was looking for ways to help them, I kept uh, inquiring and wondering how to uh, how am I affecting the brain. For me, the process was a bit in reverse. That means I worked with the kids, I got really great outcomes, and I asked what happened that the outcome happened. And I assumed it was in the brain. And I gradually figured out different ideas. For instance, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Sorry. The, I worked with a child, I, I, talk, uh, I write about it in the book, that had cerebral palsy, and he, there was a wonderful improvement, but his legs, no matter what I did, when he did any movement, the legs got, you know, the adductors got very tight and the legs got tight together, and he couldn't move them separately. And it uh, took me a while, and all of a sudden it occurred to me that actually for him, he doesn't have two legs in his experience, he has only one leg because he always moved them together ever since he was born. And uh, so I did things to get, to get him to differentiate and feel that he has two separate legs, which actually work. And, uh, you know, just then I f- found out that uh, Dr. Michael Merzenich and a few other researchers have induced intentionally um, cerebral palsy in rats 
by tying their legs together at birth and having them move with the legs always together so that when they removed, you know, they freed the legs up, the rats continued moving them together. That means they mapped in the brain as one leg. So this is an example of how I've done this, you know, with many, many ways and reached ideas or uh, got to ideas of how the brain works and how to communicate with the brain to get it to do its job better uh, in the face of challenges. Research uh, in the last 10, 15 years has been more and more the principles of the Feldenkrais method and then also what I have been figuring out over these years. And, and if we have listeners today who have special needs children and, and they've tried physical therapy and thinking this isn't something that they need to do, can you talk a little bit about how this is, you, you talk in the book about how it's fundamentally different than physical therapy to do your method, even though they're, they're both dealing with movement. Uh, what would be the main way you would differentiate this from uh, pursuing physical therapy for um, someone with special needs? Uh, well, I I will. Okay, uh, it's interesting because nobody's ever actually quite believe it or not posed the question quite this way. So let me uh, try and, and and give an, an answer uh, that's not too long. I think the very first uh, difference is that when I work uh, with a child, uh, I just responded uh, on Facebook to a question uh, that uh, is I. I, uh, um, I don't look to make the child do what they can't do. Uh, I don't look to fix the child. I don't, so if the child can't sit up, I do, and let's say they're already 10 months old, I'm not going to just put them sitting up, putting them sitting up with the hope that somehow they will be able to maintain sitting up. Or if a child is not ready to or walk it by themselves, I will not spend time trying to put them on a walker. Uh, my understanding is that in order to arrive at sitting or arrive at standing, there is an extremely rich and complex uh, process of the child doing lots and lots of different and varied movements that might seem like completely unrelated to sitting or standing or walking, but this is the, the mapping of the brain, the differentiation and the creation of lots of different connections in the brain and lots of different possibilities for the brain to control the body in very complex ways, different relationships between the, let's say, the right hip and the right shoulder, right hip, left shoulder, uh, way more than we would want to list it. So rather than looking at developmental stages and when the kid is not getting to that developmental stage to try to make them be there, I take the child where they are and I start communicating with them, you know, through movement with attention and my other essentials to get the brain to do the process that the healthy, the brain of a healthy child will do, which is lots of different movements and experiences and information in the nervous system that spontaneously then gets integrated into one thing after the other after the other. 
And that seems to work very, very well, even at times under pretty extreme conditions. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Anat Baniel, the author of Kids Beyond Limits, Breakthrough Results for Children with Autism, Asperger's, Brain Damage, ADHD, and Undiagnosed Developmental Delays. Let's take a first caller. Welcome to Health Watch. You're on the air with Anat Baniel. Hello. I uh, had the opportunity to see Feldenkrais uh, uh, well, at UCD down in uh, San Diego years ago. He was 90 years old. And there were hundreds of people out there doing what you're talking about. When will your workshop be? I'd like to come to it because it may help me. I'm now a senior, and uh, I need uh, that kind of uh, movement. It's a movement. It was a wonderful movement process. Thank you for the call. We'll, we'll mention the details at the end of the show today. Thank you. Uh, one of one of my uh, favorite parts of the book, Anat, was you were just talking before the caller about uh, developmental milestones and some of the downsides of of pushing for developmental, meeting developmental milestones, or even the trend to try to meet them early. And I love that part of the book where you talk about how humans are one of the mammals that um, develop, we're unique among mammals in terms of how slowly we develop, and that the things that we do faster, the things that we already know, and to learn new new things, slowness is actually our ally. Can Can you talk a little bit more about some of the downsides of, of pushing for more developmental milestone. Um, I know you talk about tummy time as, as having possible downsides, even though it's, it's advocated by most pediatricians. Uh, I'd be delighted to do that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm on a closer crusade on this topic, so I just gave a, a grand rounds for pediatricians here in the local hospital, and that's one of the things I discussed with them. Um, so let's uh, first talk about the, the slowness of the human development. So when we compare our development to the development, let's say, of uh, chimpanzees, who are extremely, you know, complex and skillful already, you know, beings with definite uh, observable intelligence. But when we compare humans to chimpanzees, if we were to take the speed of developmental uh, um, milestones, occurring as the, the predictor of future intelligence and, and capabilities, then chimpanzees should be a whole lot more, should be able to do a lot more than humans can do. And it's exactly the reverse. So the slowing down, the getting a bigger brain, a, a, a potentially bigger brain, getting a brain that has to form four-fifths of its future Size, you know, we're born with no voluntary movement, so we have to learn everything. But giving this kind of time actually allows for a much greater complexity of the brain, not complicatedness, but complexity. That means that we can do more complex and refined and, uh, uh, things in terms of movement, so, you know, I wouldn't want to wrestle a chimpanzee. You know, they're very powerful, and I, wouldn't, I know I'm going to lose. But uh, what humans can do in terms of movement, uh, just think of just dance, like ballet expression, let's say. We can take anything, skiing, we can take anything. What humans can do in terms of thinking, in terms of invention, in terms of the invention of sciences, that means mathematics is a human brain invention. That is possible 
without this slowed down process of development, this open-ended, slowed down the, the process, uh, uh, we would not be who we are and have the potentials that we are. Now, that doesn't mean that we want to start crawling at age 40 and start walking at age 60. I mean, there is a certain rhythm to the growth or we know that something is wrong. But when something is wrong, the lack of, let's say, if a child can't sit or another developmental milestone, it's not the milestone that's missing. I mean, it's missing, but the focus needs to be on the underlying process that brings about the spontaneous manifestation of milestones. Now, when we take a healthy child and we take a child, let's say, at four weeks, now some, some doctors recommend it two weeks, it's one week, which is, for me, really unthinkable. But we take a child, let's say, recommend tummy time at, at four weeks. First of all, if you just read online parents discussing it, you see that most babies absolutely abhor tummy time. They scream, they yell, they hate it. There's a whole industry now that's developed to put little wedges under their belly and so on to try and make it a little more comfortable for them. In other words, this is not something that they are ready to do and they're built to do. Now, in, what happens is when an infant is born, the brain really activates the flexors. That means the muscles that, you know, that fold the child, that bend the joints, the way it was in the uterus. And it takes a while before the brain gets active and connects and starts contracting what's called the extensors. That means the arching of the back and making it so it's possible for the child to actually lie on the belly because right now when you put them on the belly when they're little, they fold they, they, and, they, and their head gets stuck. And the real loss, aside from the child really suffering and know the adults around them not responding to their discomfort and getting them out of it, which I don't think is a good idea. Aside from that, if you watch a baby on their back, and I don't mean that a newborn should be on their back all the time. They should also be carried and, you know, moved around and so on. But, but when you watch them on their back, they do a lot of random movements, this kind of twitching, little twitches that happen that the brain kind of fires and there's a reflex activity and involuntary twitching, lots and lots of twitching and movements all the time. This is the initial flood of information for the brain. This is when they begin feeling themselves and they move and they hit certain things and they start learning their own body and mapping their own body and that's enormous amount of variation and movement helps, begins helping forming the brain and then slowly the back starts arching while they're lying on their back and the feet start, you know, the little heel kicks into the ground every so often and the pelvis then learns to rotate and gradually they coordinate it with the movement of the head and the eyes. And by the time a child really rolls from their back to their belly voluntarily, usually somewhere between early would be four months, some of them do it between six to seven months even. Uh, it is a remarkably orchestrated, beautifully coordinated movement that coordinates the eye movement with the head rotation, with the pelvis, timing it with the spine, 
timing it with shifting the weights of the legs and the arms in space, all of which is terribly important information for eventually standing up. So we deny the child really wonderfully useful uh, and, and rich, uh, you know, resources for the rest of their life. So accelerating development is kind of like trying to take your child and turn them into an ape rather than allowing them to evolve more towards being a human. That's really fascinating. Anand, one of the, one of the core uh, parts of Kids Beyond Limits is this emphasis on movement with, a, movement with attention and the importance of movement with attention. Can you, can you explain to our listeners what that means and why it's important to have a movement of this type? Yes. The movement, uh, when movement is done without attention, automatic movement, uh, uh, what it does, it only grooves in more deeply existing connections. But when we want to create new movement, new skills, or improve on a movement that we know, movement with attention gets the brain to begin forming new connections at an extremely rapid rate. It's estimated with the infants that the average is 1.8 million new connections per second. And research that also Dan Merzenich and his peers, our colleagues, is, shows that movement without attention does not change much the mapping in the brain. That means the connection between the part that's moving and the brain, and more connections for that part in the brain. But movement with attention, very, very rapid increase of the size of the mapping associated with that movement. And I didn't fully answer your question before about slow, that fast we can only do what we already know. So, for instance, reflexes are very fast. They're pre-patterned in the brain. They're very, very fast. And there's not, no learning or change associated with them. And with children, they just get inhibited as the child develops. Uh, most of them get eventually inhibited. But, <clears throat> but the same thing is movement with it. So, and slow gets the brain's attention, gives the brain a chance to feel what's going on and to, to, to get new information. Movement with attention does the same thing. And uh, let, I'd like to just say what that is that thing that all those essentials provide. The brain is an information system. It organizes itself, it organizes the body, and the more it does, the better it does it, the better outcomes we get. That's how I believe we can help children with special needs because we take their brains and we get their brains to organize, to, to generate an information and use it in a high, at a higher level, and that's how they overcome limitations. So what's the source of information for the brain? And most people, and a lot of times in more traditional therapy, it's the case by the way I see it, people confuse stimulation with information. Stimulation is not information. The brain has to take stimulation and turn it, use it as information. And the way the brain does it is through perception of differences. It's not until the brain perceives a difference that
This is a coordinated monthly test of the emergency alert system through broadcast stations in the greater Portland-Vancouver area, including Clackamas, Columbia, Multnomah, and Washington counties in Oregon, and Clark County in Washington. Equipment that can quickly warn you during emergencies is being tested. If this had been an actual emergency, official information would have followed the alert tone. This test was originated by Clark Regional Emergency Services Agency in Vancouver, Washington. This concludes this test message. to move them in such a way that they uh, pay close attention to what they feel. And without exception, they really, uh, I mean, the, the transformations sometimes are really startling. They're so remarkable and so quick. So people feel it's like a miracle for me. The whole thing is one big miracle, but, but underneath it, there's definitely scientific principles. And in more traditional therapy, when we impose on the child to do, you know, stretch them or try to put them sitting or crawl them, or the child, goes, the child has no opportunity to really feel themselves and gauge what's going on and make it a source of a richness of input from which the child themselves generates the change. Rather than we imposing the change, the child changes themselves. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today with Anat Baniel about her book, Kids Beyond Limits. Anat, that principle of the of of the child generating the change, it seems like one thing that really strikes me from the book is that the, it seems like the parents are required to go through a revolution in thinking and through a whole journey of learning themselves. If, if, if we're looking at um, focusing on a, a kid's present abilities and, and, and to stop focusing on their disabilities and stop focusing on fixing, and just this very notion of trying to move with more intention from the place of ability um, it would seem like that would be a growth uh, journey for for the parents and might involve quite a bit of guidance as well for them to learn how to do that. I, I, I love that you, you are asking this question because it is. It's a very, very big challenge for the parents. So, for example, I, I mentioned that I just answered a Facebook uh, question by a mother that is doing, you did the traditional therapy for a while with her child, and now she, they've been working with us for a bit. And when they came to us, they could put the child on a walker, and he sort of walked, I mean, if you want to call it walking. But he couldn't, you know, spontaneously get up and cruise and do these things. Now we asked her to, to leave him alone with the walker, not put him on that for a while. And now he is getting up and cruising and actually even moving from one piece of furniture to another. That means he, he can already take the risk and not lean much on anything and go to something else, which is what all healthy children do as they learn to walk, right? And the mother's question says, he is doing that, but should she not give him the walker? Wouldn't that accelerate his learning how to walk? And, you know, and that just is the demonstration of how difficult it is. Even though her child now is, is standing and cruising and starting to actually behave a lot more like as if he didn't have the disability, 
you know, there is that drive to accelerate. There's over and over again the drive to fix the child. And it is a very, very difficult transition. And I say to the parents that we do have to guide them a lot, and they do need to really go through a process, what I call an, of enlightenment, their own process. They have to start moving with attention. They have to pay attention to the movement of their emotions, not just the movement of their body, and the movement of their thoughts, and it's where are their thoughts taking them. And they need to start look. and the child, by the way, in that uh, Facebook communication, the child is refusing to use the walker now. So I, I explained to her what I explained to her in my response on the Facebook, but then I said at the end, I said, in this case, I would recommend you listen to your child's intelligence rather than to yours. Because the child is interested in doing what they're, I mean, it's remarkable that he can do it, actually. It's very exciting. But, so yes, huge, and many, many parents, actually, after working with us for a while, say that they feel that even though their child has changed tremendously, they feel that they have changed even more. Because you start trusting the process, you start trusting the intelligence of the system, and you start, and it's much easier to trust it when you see it improving. And when they start using the essentials, they see that they get a lot better response and evolution in their child than if they try to force the child. But it's not an easy transition for a lot of parents, and a lot of times people around them try to push them back, like you have to put the braces, you've got to do the walker, you better, you know, I, so it's, it's, but it's, yes, you're right, it's a very demanding on the parents and it's a very, a, it's a very exciting, for me, I, I think it's a very exciting process. And uh, unfortunately, we only have a couple more minutes. Can you, can you, uh, share the details of your workshop this upcoming weekend and, and a little bit about what people can expect if they attend? Absolutely. So the workshop, as you said, takes place uh, this coming Saturday, November 10th, in the Middleman JCC in Portland, Oregon. It's a one-day workshop from 9 to 530. Um, we have a few spaces left, and I also wanted to offer, I talked to my organizer, people can go on my website, I'm not com and find, you know, the details and connect with Joanna, my enrollment person in Portland. And we will also offer the early, uh, um, you know, registration because people are hearing it just now, so I, I would like to make it more affordable for people. And what people can expect is, is like the gentleman that called in, uh, uh, quite a bit of movement themselves. I'm going to have them move, just apropos what you said, this, so that... They can feel in their own bodies how they can change and how rapidly they can change when applying movement with attention and slow and the other essentials. Also, I give them movements that they can take elements from and interact with through those movements with their child. I, sh I give all the principles. I show videos of work with children with autism, the child with cerebral palsy. I give a little video of Dr. Michael Merzenich talking about, and I explain the relationship between how the human brain grows and how they can take advantage of the enormous capacity of the brain to grow and change to helping the child, their child with their challenges. 
And, uh, you know, if you, I don't know if you have plans or not, or, but if you want to come, I'd love to have you as my guest. Oh, well, thank you very much, Anant. It was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. Thank you very, very much. We were, t- we were talking today with Anat Baniel, the author of Kids Beyond Limits, Breakthrough Results for Children with Autism, Asperger's, Brain Damage, ADHD, and Undiagnosed Developmental Delays.